to Season 1, Episode 1 of Who Cares What's the Point, the podcast about the mind for people who think. My name is Saab Johal, your host and producer of this podcast, and you can follow the show on Twitter at WCWTP or go to whocareswhatsthepoint.com for more details about the show. You can also find us on iTunes, the Google Play Store, or Stitcher, and you can subscribe to the show there, and you can follow me at Saab on Twitter too. In this first show of season one, I have a conversation with Matt Williams of the School of Psychology at Massey University here in New Zealand. Now, Matt and his colleagues are interested in the idea that anthropogenic climate change might lead to more aggressive behavior becoming more common. We know that there seems to be a link between behavior and short-term variations in temperature, particularly aggressive behavior. But what happens if this temperature change is sustained over a period of time, perhaps over an entire region, if not globally? Have a listen to the conversation between myself and Matt coming right up. Uh, Matt, thanks for being on the show. Um, Maybe we can talk a little bit about the the backstory for for your paper. Why did you do this research in the first place? So um, back in 2010, I was kind of looking around for um, a research project to do um, for my doctorate in clinical psychology degree. Um, at the time, An Inconvenient Truth, a film by Al Gore, it had come out a few years before. Um, climate change was also very kind of heavily in the media due to the um, the kind of email, email scandal at the University of East Anglia where a bunch of emails amongst climate scientists had been um, hacked and released to the general public. Um, so that, yeah, lots of arguments, lots of contention about climate change in the popular media. And I became really, really fascinated with that. Um, and as it happened, I managed to find a supervisor at Massey, Stephen Hill, who kind of shared my obsession with climate change. Um, and we kind of put our heads together and try to figure out how it might be possible for me to do some research related to climate change um, within a restriction I had, which was that because I was doing a a clinical psychology doctorate, I needed to do something that was clinically relevant in some way to to clinical psychology. Um, So I ended up finding out that there was this body of research in psychology showing that there seemed to be some kind of correlation between temperature and various types of violence. Um, so there could be things like assaults and homicides, but also um, violence um, against the self. So things like self-harm um, incidents and suicide also seem to be correlated with temperature. And I thought to myself, um, I wondered if it might be possible to try and work out how climate change might affect these variables, how it might affect human violence. Um, so that was how we um, came to kind of look at this project here and the, the, the general article you're looking at, which is um, looking at the effects of temperature on assault rates within New Zealand. So the general premise here is that as um, climate change seems to indicate that we'll have rising global temperatures, you're wondering whether that's going to have an influence on, on behaviour, particularly around assault to others and to the self. That's absolutely right, yeah. So trying to see if we can um, extrapolate from that correlation that we see between temperature and violence um, on short timescales and try to actually predict 
what, what does that imply about a world in which temperatures are going to be rising by maybe two or three degrees Celsius? So you've got this kind of short-term seasonal change. So you, you have a, like a hot week in summer and, and there's a correlation that seems to exist there with, with that kind of behavior. So what does this look like when essentially you're, you're moving the bar upwards uh, and, and seeing what happens then? Exactly. So, so the, the real problem um, for this research area is trying to make inferences about how humans will react to really sustained increases in temperature. Um, it's quite easy for us to look at the correlation on short timescales. And, and luckily enough, when we look at things like random te temperature variation from day to day, you have something almost like a natural experiment where because temperature varies randomly, if we see that it um, correlates on a day-to-day -day kind of um, uh, basis with acts of violence, then we can make a reasonably confident um, conclusion that the temperatures are actually having a causal effect. But what that implies about how things will change in a world where we have this really sustained long-term increase in temperature is a little bit more um, tricky to work out. And, and it's kind of exacerbated by the fact that over the course of recent human history, we just haven't seen um, sustained dramatic increases in temperature. Um, some, for the last sort of 8,000 years, we've been in a period, um, the epoch of the, sorry, the Holocene epoch, where um, temperatures have been remarkably stable. So basically, all of really significant human development in terms of things like the development of written language, development of cities, of agriculture, has all occurred in a period of time where temperatures have been reasonably stable worldwide. So we just don't have that much data to show how humans react to really massive sustained increases in temperature. Um, and that's what my research is all about trying to work out. So how did you um, go about tackling that problem then, um, looking at what might happen when you do have this sustained temperature increase, perhaps happening gradually, perhaps not happening quite so gradually, depending upon which model mm. ends up uh, uh, coming to um, fruition? Um, how, how did you go about doing this research? Well, what I ended up doing was looking at the relationship between temperature and violence um, across a few different um, timescales. So we looked at how um, days that were hotter than average for a particular geographical area and a particular time of year, how those related to rates of violence. But then we also looked at how different periods of the year, so seasons that were warmer um, or colder related to rates of violence, and we also compared different geographical areas um, to see where the areas that were warmer um, than average for New Zealand tend to be associated with higher assault rates, um, which they were to some degree. Um, and in that sense, we drew on a few different data sources um, that allow us to kind of not just infer that there's a correlation between temperature and violence, but also try to work out whether the really sustained exposure to warmer temperatures um, seem to be associated with higher risk of violence. Um, and certainly when we compare different geographical areas, that's the analysis where we really can see um, the relationship between sustained exposure to warmer temperatures and rates of violence. Um, so that was an important part of the study, but it doesn't work all on its own because when we compare different geographical areas, they're obviously different in many different ways aside from just being warmer or colder um, than one another. Um, so that analysis is somewhat kind of 
uh, vulnerable to confounding, I guess you might say. But when we see a consistent picture across these different data sources showing a positive relationship between temperature and violence, it starts to give us some confidence um, that there is a causal effect of temperature on, on violence and that um, a sustained exposure to higher temperatures is at least somewhat probable to result in, um, in higher rates of violence. That, that sounds interesting. Maybe we can come back to what those other explanations might be. Um, which geographies were you looking at and comparing when you were looking at those different temperature ranges um, to have a look at that sustained um, increased temperature? Where, who, where were you comparing against where? Uh, so all my research was using uh, New Zealand data. Um, but in terms of the geographical units of analysis we were looking at, it was districts um, or territorial local authorities, of which there are, uh, from memory, 70-something in New Zealand. So you were comparing kind of different units of area within the same kind of geographical region. Um, so in terms of the general, perhaps, um, um, latitude and longitude that um, um, these people were living in, it was uh, within a particular catchment area. Is that right? Yeah. So each of those um, districts or, or territorial local authorities are reasonably restricted in geographical area. So we have some particularly large ones like Auckland, but for the most part, um, they're reasonably homogenous in terms of their climate within a particular district. Um, but across districts, obviously, the climates are quite different. We have um, things like the Queenstown Lakes area in the middle of the South Island, which is very, very cold in um, comparison to the far north, which is very warm and gives us some kind of um, basis to, to look at that relationship between temperature and violence across different districts. Okay, so you've got a, a nice bit of variation there. Um, so what did you find? Um, so what we ended up finding is um, certainly days that are hotter than average for a particular geographical location and a particular time of year were associated with um, a higher risk of assault. So we're looking at about 1.5% more assaults for each degree of warming. Um, we also found that um, across the seasons of the year or the months of the year, um, warmer time periods were associated with higher assault rates. So assault rates tended to peak in about December. Um, and we also found that warmer geographical regions tended to be associated with higher assault rates, um, though that particular correlation was really subject to a lot more uncertainty. And whether that effect turned out to be statistically significant or not depended on which demographical variables um, we controlled for. Um, and really, in some ways, um, when we're looking at that relationship between um, temperature and violence across geographical areas, um, some of the other research that's been done internationally comparing, um, looking at that relationship across a wider range of geographical areas with even wider temperature variation is, is perhaps a slightly stronger data source. Um, so for my research, as you know, a lot of research in um, psychology and other areas of science, um, one research project alone doesn't provide a complete picture. We kind of have to look at it in um, conjunction with other research studies from um, from other research units. So that sounds like a, a significant, but um, it, yeah, small, 1.5% per degree, but significant kind of uh, relationship that you found there. How much of this do you think can be explained by density of population? Um, you know, in that 
Perhaps it's that people like living in warmer climates and are, are willing to put up with um, living closer to uh, other people, which then means that um, they're in each other's way a little bit more than perhaps they would be in a cooler climate. Uh, funny enough, there was something that one of our peer reviewers suggested as well. Um, we ended up checking the effects of population density um, in a supplementary analysis. Um, and it ended up to not really explain the, the relationship between the two. Um, I think in general, really, the, the idea of trying to work out what what the mechanism is of this relationship between temperature and violence is, is the really tricky one. We can describe the relationship pretty well, and we can even infer that it's, it's probably representing some kind of causal effect. But working out how that causal effect actually takes place is, is the really difficult bit and the part that my research itself didn't directly address. I, that, that sounds interesting, mate, and I guess that's where I'm going with with this is that you've described that there is a relationship and it does look like it perhaps is causal in terms of um, time. So this happens before something else happens. Um, the temperature mm-hmm. rise uh, seems to lead to behavior change later on in the terms of uh, increase of um, assault rates. But who, mm-hmm. who should care about this research? Who should be paying attention? I think that's an interesting question. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that every member of the public needs to go wade into my journal article and read about the complicated kind of generalized linear mixed models um, and look at all the details of my data analysis and so on. But I think for the the average person on the street, we all need to really be aware of climate change and in particular think about how it's going to be affecting our lives in a range of different ways. So I think there can sometimes be a bit of a conception that we are people only need to worry about climate change if they're concerned about things like effects on polar bears and coral reefs and the wildlife around us, but that it isn't necessarily going to affect our own everyday day-to-day lives. Um, But that's not the case. I mean, climate change is going to affect economic production worldwide. It's going to affect um, most likely rates of conflict between people. And what's particularly worrying to me is that my own research falls into this wider body of research looking at the relationship between conflict and temperature more generally. Um, And there seems to be stronger and stronger evidence that um, not only are um, incidences of violence between people affected by temperature, but so too are incidences of violence between nations and between groups. So historically, warmer time periods have been associated with higher rates of civil conflict and higher rates of wars. Um, and even though obviously temperature and climate are not the most important drivers of the risk of, of, of horrible things like wars, um, even the smallest kind of increase in risk that climate change might exert could be really, really problematic for us. I mean, we're talking about a world right now that suddenly starts to feel like a little bit of a tinderbox where you've got Donald Trump talking about pulling out of NATO. You've got Great Britain um, potentially exiting from the European Union. We've got these institutions that historically have existed to reduce the risk of warfare between developed nations that are starting to come apart a little bit. And when you add another risk factor into the mix of climate change, um, things start to, to seem pretty worrying. So I think we we all need to be aware that climate change is going to represent a pretty dramatic shift 
um, to the world around us, not just in terms of wildlife and um, pretty pieces of natural beauty, but in terms of our real everyday lives and the things that are most worrying to us, like um, being able to to produce food, being able to have access to fresh water and being able to live in a world that, that isn't full of conflict. So that's really interesting, uh, Matt. So you're saying that um, as well as thinking about how climate change um, perhaps affects things like access to resources um, and availability of things like water, um, it's actually perhaps um, not just uh, affecting interactions between individuals, but has the potential to lead to more likelihood of intergroup conflict and could act as part of that tipping point of when perhaps Perhaps negotiations don't go so well because um, we have this background effect of uh, a temperature rising, which has this effect on behavior and how people process information and deal with each other. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, increasing temperatures worldwide could act as a risk factor for for group conflict in a few different ways. It, it could be the case that generally we, we know that in warmer temperatures people feel a little bit more aggressive, so that could be part of the background problem. Um, but also in terms of things like uh, provoking conflict over freshwater resources, um, in terms of things like forced migrations where um, we know that there's particular parts of the world that are going to be especially vulnerable um, to sea level rise, um, parts of the Pacific Islands, um, Bangladesh and so on where people may need to move in, in large numbers. Um, enforced migrations tend to um, provoke conflict, and we see that in, in Europe at the moment. Um, and especially that could be problematic in the case where we have a world at the moment where we've got a bit of a growing rise of, of uh, nationalism, of countries being a little bit more hesitant to accept migrants and refugees than they were in the past. Um, so that could be a really problematic risk factor. Um, so again, rising temperatures alone don't start wars, but if they are a risk factor that increase the probability that a particular conflict could break out, that that's a real problem. And that happens not just on a on a, a resource um, allocation scarcity level, but on a behavioural problem, as you're saying. So I, I think we can clearly see the point of, of you doing your research and the possible implications. But um, where next for you then, in terms of your relationship to this research line? What do you, what do you think um, should be happening next? Um, for me, I think moving to the future, I'd really like to get involved in research that looks at how we can actually mitigate climate change. So trying to work out um, what needs to happen to help us as a global society to, to do something about climate change. Um, it's not the case that we're going to be able to stop it completely or um, keep temperatures exactly where they are at the moment, um, but we still have the capability to actually take action um, to, to reduce the damage that's caused by climate change. I think psychologists have a really key um, part to play in that. Because at the end of the day, though, you know, we identify climate change with uh, climate scientists and physicists and meteorologists and so on. It's a problem that's caused by human behavior. Um, and we as psychologists are meant to be the ones that have expertise in changing human behavior. Um, so looking at how we can um, increase support for real um, action on climate change and how we can perhaps um, gently nudge people towards taking action in their day-to-day -day lives to reduce their carbon footprint 
um, is something I'm quite interested in in the future. So that kind of uh, behavioural economics approach where you're trying to encourage people to uh, take decisions that are not only beneficial for them, but also the societies that we live in and the environment in which we exist, that context mm-hmm. seems to be um a natural step then to think thinking about the utility of building that case yeah absolutely um so yeah gently nudging people towards finding ways where they can make a difference in the in their everyday lives is certainly part of the picture i mean it's difficult we all uh tend to some degree to be selfish and to make decisions that um suit our own kind of economic imperatives um, but we also have the capability to do things that, that benefit others and that are altruistic um, but of course the individual behavior change aspect can only be part of the solution um, at the end of the day to to make a real big difference um, in terms of climate change political action needs to be a huge part of that um, there's there's no getting around that um, and things like the Paris Climate Agreement are a really um, positive step towards that um, but maybe I guess the real worry is will nations kind of pull through um, on what they've agreed to and actually start applying um, carbon taxes and taking real action on climate change. Um, And I think for us as individuals, one of the biggest things that we can do to try and um, take positive action on climate change is to um, indicate our support for taking action on climate change to political parties, to whoever, um, whichever political party a person happens to be associated with, to communicate to their local member of parliament that they do want to see us take action on climate change to, to make a real difference, that it is something really important for us and for future generations. So I hope you enjoyed that first episode of Who Cares? What's the Point? You can find the paper that Matt was talking about in the show notes if you're listening on your device, or you can come to whocareswhatsthepoint.com for further information, look up the blog post and find the show notes and the paper there. You can contact me uh, by email at contact at whocareswhatsthepoint.com. And don't forget, you can follow at Twitter at WCWTP or my personal account at Saab on Twitter as well. Don't forget to tune in next week for the next episode of Who Cares? What's the Point? My name is Saab Johal, your host and producer for this podcast. See you next week.